You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Check out Dogs Are Treat at dogsartreat.com. And if you go to their website at checkout and enter the code HXP20% off, you will get 20% off of your entire order on all of their branded products. Leashes, tie-outs, medical kits, paws are protected. Build your pack from the ground up and support a fellow houndsman that supports your lifestyle. Enter the code HXP20% off at checkout. Go to their website today at dogsartreed.com. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in there. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up here! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days? How many days a week do you spend out As much as I can, to be honest with you. Any time that I get, I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not. So you might as well be here. This is a story of the true American spirit. Not only is my guest an extreme performance houndsman, but his family settled a very unique area 
in Louisiana. Uh, I want to introduce you to my new friend, Chad Wall. Uh, Chad and his family have been in the same area of Louisiana for over 190 years, and they were the first family to move into uh, this area near Springfield, Louisiana, and they set up their own colony. And even to this day, there is one road going in and one road coming out, and they went in there and hacked out a living in that swamp. From strawberry farms to alligator farms, you're going to hear the entrepreneurial spirit of a family that not only strived for survival in that area, but they thrived. They learned how to thrive from the largest alligator farm in the United States to now the family is building custom boats. Check out Gator Tracks Boats. Uh, and also Old South dog boxes, custom dog boxes that are getting shipped all across the United States. So this is a this is a success story. I, I can't tell you how much I was drawn in to the culture and seeing how Chad Wall's family has settled one of the most inhospitable places in the United States. Uh, those Louisiana swamp, swamps are very unforgiving. And they figured out how to make that happen. We're going to talk about deer dogging. We're going to talk about uh, trapping. We're going to talk about alligator hunting. This this one has got got it all. And I'm excited to introduce you to my new friend, Chad Wall of Wall to Wall Manufacturing, home of Old South Dog Boxes. And you're going to enjoy this show. I also want to remind you that there are only a couple weeks left for you to join us on Patreon to be included in our big summer giveaway from Dakota 283. We partnered with them to provide one lucky patron that supports us on Patreon with a Dakota 283 G3 medium kennel and a Dash 3.5. Great products. You can check out the reviews on their website at dakota283.com. You can find a review of some of their gear in the original video on the Houndsman XP Facebook group. And I got to tell you, you guys have been burning that group up. Can't tell you how much we enjoy that interaction and seeing you support us there as well as with this podcast. But You've got until August 1st to join us on Patreon, and then your name is in the hat for that drawing. And there's three ways that uh, we're, we're providing a way for you to win. So if you're already in, the, in Patreon with us, we really appreciate you. We've already put your name in the hat. If you know a friend that enjoys this podcast and wants to support us, then you refer them to join us on Patreon and we will put an additional entry for you in this drawing. The third way is join us by August 1st. And if you join us by August 1st, we'll get you in this drawing. We're going to draw mid-September and we're going to hook somebody up with some very high quality, cool gear. So join us by August 1st to be included in the drawing. 
The hounds in the Old South are rocking, baby. They have got it figured out. We know which way this track is headed, so it's time to dump the box. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. We are at the world headquarters, the global world headquarters of, I don't even know what all you're doing here, Chad. Every The more I talk to you, the the more depth I find to your story. Right. But uh, we're at Old South Dog Boxes, and I'm picking up a box that you just made for me. Yes, it's, sir. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, this is the one and only uh, headquarters. The, our our main source is it's wall-to-wall manufacturing is the name of our company. Right. Our, our brand that we hang our hat on is the Old South Dog Boxes. <clears throat> is uh is Old South Dog Boxes. So yeah, that's it, man. Yeah, we got your rig ready to roll, and uh, I think they're in there now, getting it loaded up for you. That's good. It'll look good sitting on the on the truck. Yeah, it's a cool rig. Yeah, and uh, we kind of scoped that out with uh, you and I together. You, you, I told you what I wanted, yep. and you made it happen. Yep, that's yeah. exactly what we do. We do it every day. Yeah, and and you know a lot of times uh, the dog box market for a lot of people, um, th- there's a lot of options out there. And I shopped for, right for a dog for a dog box that could be made the way I way I needed one to perform. Right. And I mean I'm not going to set any records on on the customization you know customizing this box and all that stuff but it's a good usable box that i wanted but man you're putting together some rigs out there that are unbelievable yeah yeah and it's 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 funny how we've been doing this a long time and different industries when i say industries i mean mainly uh, houndsmen of different uh, genres if you will you know they all have different tendencies so, like, you know, a beagle guy from the south or midwest is not going to have the same rig that a lion hunter out west is going to have. They're complete opposites. Yeah. So, inside each, you know, individual uh, game species that they hunt has a lot of similar boxes. You could, you could walk in my shop on most days. If there's there's probably, I don't know, let's say a dozen boxes on the floor, I could pretty much just look at them and tell you what kind of game or what kind of hounds those guys are running. <laughs> so, 80, 90 percent, you know. Yeah. And um, some of them, but the cool thing, we literally cater to the guy that needs one little single bait kennel. They're tired of their dog tearing it up. They just want something that will hold him while they're traveling on a family vacation. All the way up to these very elaborate, you know, air-conditioned, multi-bay, Bluetooth. It's crazy. Looking at that trailer out there that you're building right now with the, the storage compartments and the Right. And everything, but but what set what sets the old South box apart? What's what's that trademark for well, you, I, Chad? Well, I can tell you, we never set out for it to be that way, but evidently, what it is because it's just been a naturation. 
is uh, not to get too much of a backstory, but when we were raised up in this area, we call it a creek, um, we had to build everything ourselves for it to hold up for one and two, because we had a specific thing that we were trying to accomplish and we had to build something to fit that specific use. Right. All right. So that's how a lot of things down here got built and started decades ago. The same way the dog boxes got started. Well, because of that, I own it. I operate it. I'm in here working every day and I literally touch every box that goes out of here at one, one shape or form. You know? Yeah. And you're a we, hard guy to get even get a hold of because you're right, always out in that shop. Right. Work. Instead of being in the office all day or on, I'm literally having to be in there working and guiding and welding and doing all of that. So mm-hmm. I think by far that helps as far as the quality control, having the guy who feeds his kids literally in there every day working on it. But more importantly than that, we only know one way to build things. It's the same way that I grew up building them. We do not have a very if – a, if a business was to come in here – um, a big global business and look at the way we do things, they probably tell us we were crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Our business model probably sucks because we, we overbuild, you know, what, what we do. But it's just the I don't work on our own products. They don't come back. We just don't see them. Right. You know, and I've, I've learned over the years when I see some other manufacturers and not only that, just some other things that people have built. Uh, I can identify weaknesses in different things, mm-hmm. and we jump ahead of the game. You know, we get ahead yeah. of it and make sure that you're not going to have a problem with that because we, you know, I have a background in some aluminum boat industry too, and that industry is let's, – let's, let's stop right there. Pull, yeah. we'll, we'll pull the reins back a little bit because I kind of let the – I let the horses run before, <laughs> right. before I was ready, and it's my fault. But So we're in Springfield, Louisiana. Yes, sir. And uh, before let's, – let's talk about – the history of your family mm-hmm. in this area yeah uh from your grandfather how hounds got involved um you know all of that sort of stuff to to why you started building boats and why you, why your family builds boats and why your family builds boxes and right and all that i want i want to touch on all that stuff yeah well i can i can definitely bore you to death with all the details but i (laughs) you you probably can attest to this that not many people are going to talk with me very long whether they haven't known me before or not, and me not start telling them some of my family history from where we're at and why we're here. It's just something that um, that I'm very proud of. It just it runs really deep in our roots. We just, we, we've lived in this swamp water long enough that it just means a lot to me. We travel all over the world. You know, we're, we're lucky enough to travel a lot of places in the U.S., and I've been to five different countries through our show that we do and through hunting. And um, I love a lot of different places. And we're going to talk about wall hanger TV. I left yeah. that out of the resume because yeah, I was saving that as a zinger. Yeah, you'll have to get to that later. You bet. <laughs> but uh, but the 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 short version of the family is we we've been here a long time. We're part of the three percenters, the true three percenters. We came in on the East Coast a long time ago, prior to Revolutionary War. Um, our direct descendants have fought and died in the Revolutionary War, and a lot of servicemen since then. Um, we moved to Mississippi for a little while, migrated there, and then we moved farther south into this swamp that we live in. And if you look at a giant map of Louisiana, an old one, you'll see that right as if you're coming south, uh, we're just, you know, west of Baton Rouge, just east of New Orleans. And if you're coming south through that area, that last little bit of high land before it turns to swamp is right about where we're located at. Mm-hmm. We found a place that when we originally settled this, we had to cut logs to get across a lot of the drainages to even settle where we're at. And our original settlement is on the map. It's Wall Settlement straight through the woods here, a couple miles where the crow flies. 
and the reason we were located here, we didn't really fit in in the New Orleans crowd. We didn't fit in on the river, on the plantations. We weren't rich cotton farmers. We weren't, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it just, we've got a long history of, uh, even religious history of being Baptist from back when we were on the East Coast, you know, and uh, we wanted our own, we want to be left alone to our own means. We wanted to take care of ourselves. We wanted as little as government interference as possible. Um, and because of that, we wound up settling where we are and thank God for it. I had obviously nothing to do with that, but, um, this area that we live in is very unique. Um, my, my family made a living off of the trapping industry for a long time. Uh, and we hunted as every family does. If they were here back then, we hunted one, we loved it, but you hunted to eat, you know, you hunted yeah. to survive. And um, that's where hounds got introduced into this. Now, the first wall that had hounds and ran them, I can't tell you who that was, uh, but I know it's at least five generations ago that we've got, you know, some stories and histories and pictures of some How different things. How many generations, about what year was the wall community settled? Hundred and About 190 years ago. 190 yeah. years ago, your family has been living right here. on this same dirt, mm-hmm. same spot. Yep. You built your house where your grandparents' house were? Correct. Yeah. One of my grandparents lived mm-hmm. lived here. And uh, if you were to drive this road, almost everybody uh, in the Lizard Creek community, we're, we're kin. And you may have had some, you know, girls that married different last names and stuff. But um, originally, there was just a – there was a couple, a few big families that settled this area. Mm-hmm. Um, but right here where we're at is where we settled 190 years ago, you know, and, and have been here ever since. And How so many generations ago would that have been? Well, let's see. Seven? Uh, be close. Somewhere in there. Yeah. yeah. It was before the Civil War and all that. We fought sure. that right here. You know, I mean, I had some of my direct family that was the first lieutenant in the Louisiana Infantry in the Civil War. So, I mean, we've got a, we've got a lot of history down here, man. Right. Um, and the it's roots something run that deep. Is a, very, very deep. Yeah. You know, and it's something that I take pride in because nowadays, not to chase a rabbit, but to be honest – in general speaking, these younger generations are distracted by a lot of stuff and family history and values and where they were, grew up and why they're even here is not taught near as much as it was a generation or two ago, you know. And I take pride in it, so I'm constantly telling my nieces and nephews and cousins and kids, you know, and all that. We're, we're, we talk about it all the time. I've got mm-hmm. pictures. I've got my World War II papers from some of my uh, grandparents and uncles and stuff that was in the war. I mean, we talk about it a lot, you know, so it's very important to me. But um, but to, to kind of follow along with that, so hunting uh, in this area can be extremely tough. This area always has been and probably always will be. It's swampy. It's boggy. If you do have high land, it's briars. It's thick. There are no open ground. For a guy to sight a rifle in down here, we have to travel somewhere to shoot it. You know right, what I mean? Right. You you can barely find an opening a hundred yards to shoot a rifle around here. So it's it's just it's just the way that it is. So hounds is a perfect fit for it was a necessity for people like us, mm-hmm. whether it was hogs, deer, fox, whatever they were chasing at the time, to be able to have a game species. Because think about it, you back up generations ago, we didn't have all this fancy technology you no. have now. Didn't so, even have the road system out here. Didn't even have a road system. Couldn't we, even drive around in this country. Li- that's the literal fact, you know. So um, the only thing that really made sense was getting into hound hunting and starting to organize that and being able to be more successful. So that's where my roots come from. And I was lucky enough, and I thank God almost every day for it, that when even though I'm a youngster around here compared to the old-timers, 
I literally grew up and we still had the old ways of hunting down here. We were still hunting in the swamp. We were still hunting with squealing horns. We didn't have radios. You would leave and be gone two or three days at a time. Yes, we did have boats. So I'm not sitting here trying to say that I was, I had to walk down there like my grandparents did because they did. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget the day we was hunting not far from here off Tickfall River. And uh, we just made a drive, was dog hunting. I don't remember what we killed, but we'd come out, and my little cousin had just gotten old enough to start driving dogs, which is kind of a rite of passage for us. It truly is. You're finally old enough to turn you loose in a swamp with nothing but a compass and a shotgun and a lead rope for your dogs, and it's not as easy as it sounds. We actually drive our dogs here. We train them to track with us because we Mm -hmm. have to put them where we want them, you know. Um, and to, to, for a kid to do that and make it through his first hunt, you're going to screw up a lot. You're not going to do it right. Sure but just are. the pure fact of doing it is something, you know. I'm glad you laid out. Tell us what squealing horn is. Squealing horn, uh, and it's still pretty popular in this neck of the woods, but now most guys do it more for nostalgia than anything. Mm-hmm. But we still do blow them to call our dogs to us. But the gist of it is it's a horn that can be anywhere from I've got some that are 12 inches long and I've got some that are three foot long. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them originally came from Mexico, a certain type of, uh, I don't want to get into the wrong terminology of a cattle, but it's a type of cattle horn. Yeah. Um, and it's where they come from. A lot of the old timers, uh, there's a series that you called that's still done to this day and they, the way you communicated. You, know, you didn't have radios, didn't have cell phones, so you had a series of calls that was able to know what was happening, who needed what, and when the hunt was starting, when the hunt was over. And then not only that, you were able to call to communicate with your dogs. So mm-hmm. at the end of the hunt, naturally no tracking collars, no way to do that. You know, that, that's kind of a rabbit rabbit path, but it's it's something that's interesting to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you talk about communicating with horns. There was a lady named uh, Harriet Arnaud that wrote a book called, I believe it's called The Hunter's Horn. I'll have to check on that. But she writes about growing up in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And... Appalachia was unique in its own right, but pe- people were not gathered together in tight communities. Right. They were spread out because of geography. Right. And then what I'm hearing and what I see in southern down here in southern Louisiana, you've got some geography issues here that right. keep you from settling big areas. So yeah. in, in the Appalachians, they would actually pass messages up and down the hollers and the valleys and stuff mm-hmm. based on horn, you know, the way they use those horns, yep. the means of communication. Yeah. And that's where the hunter's horn came in, and, and right. it's even transcended to here, which right. is, what, 800 600 miles from right from yeah, Cherokee, exactly. North Carolina. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. And <clears throat> when you're raised up as a young and where we were, of course, when I was growing up, you could still go out at night and we would blow our horns a lot, just communicating with our dogs. They need to know, you know, what you're doing and you're doing it when you're feeding them and doing, you know, you're just, you're just communicating with them. And you used to go out at night and blow a squealing horn and it would just be echoed up and down this swamp where you would hear, you know, your cousin down on the other end or whoever blowing or squealing horns and you but you know you start blowing tunes back and forth and all that just playing around and it's something that to this day i just went to a funeral uh last week to this day for most all of the guys around here especially the houndsmen when we put them in the ground we blow a squealing horn we blow a last call you know last hunt hunts over wow and um a lot of times you'll blow a tune and then you blow the four blows four consecutive blows at the hunts over mm-hmm. and uh, it's still done to this day so it's it's something that um you don't just make that up overnight. I mean, that's something that goes right. pretty deep, you know. 
Yeah, like I say, every time every time I talk to you, Chad, and start peeling back layers of this onion, there's a lot of layers there. Right. To, and yep. uh, so, what kind of hounds? What kind of hounds your family right? Yep. We, come up with forever. All we ever did was uh, walkers in July, and we would breed and buy and transport and all that to try to at the time to get the biggest hound we could get in a walker because of the terrain that we had down there in the swamp we learned over the years that if you have one smart enough you don't need one big enough (laughs) and you would have to see that to believe it but when we first started figuring that out there would be a little jip come in that just wouldn't size up you know but she would be a little firecracker you know and we would We'd run her in the open woods up here and kind of, you know, you kind of got to train them a little bit to get down there. You load them up on a horse, on a, when you load them dogs up the first time on an airboat, that's, you're sitting on a 16-foot boat with a 800-horsepower engine on the back of it, launch it off the riverbank and take off running down the river and throw them out in a swamp. Now, you're getting out with them, but you're throwing them out in a swamp where they're fixing a, you know, go ear deep. Yeah. It takes a gritty hound. You know, you, you, can't, you can't pre-train a dog for that. Some of them or just bon- they're going to learn it, but they have to learn it just like you do. They got to yeah. learn how to get around. They've got to learn to get used to the boats and the racket and all that. So mm-hmm. we had a little jip and she was dynamite, man. Nothing bothered her. She handled great. She run deer like crazy. And I watched her come by me one time running a deer and, uh, she was making ground through that swamp. Like I'd never seen one do before. She had learned what to step on and how to step there. And she is covering tracks. I mean, she is flying. She could outrun any big hound we ever had. But she would lunge to this spot and take two short steps here and get certain certain vegetation she learned that she could step on without sinking. I haven't learned that and part yet. <laughs> I, I sunk up to the – I mean, I mean, I really did. I sunk thigh deep uh, thinking I was figured out which vegetation to, right. to walk on in the marsh over here. And yep. Wow. Yeah, so her to figure that out that quick. Yep. Hit, is she hitting stumps, knees, you know, stuff like that? Not many stumps. What what you'll learn, too, is a deer's path down there. If you're mm-hmm. trying to cross what we call a pulling, which is when they come in 100-something years ago, they literally pulled with wagons and mules and pulled the timber, the cypress, virgin cypress timber out of swamp. Mm-hmm. They're deep. You know, you'll float ahead in them. If you find a deer trail, chances are you can walk right across it because they've already established, but a lot of that's covered up in water and duck grass and all that, but... So if you find a deer trail, usually it's pretty decent footing when they're traveling from one point to another. So, yeah. I mean, a dog's learn even that too. But my, my point to that was, so we started figuring out, we, it, it evolved over the years naturally, but uh, we still hunted Walker in July was mainly what we did. And we, Papa was probably one of the first ones, uh, 20, well, 30 some odd years ago that actually went, uh, time started evolving, being able to communicate and stuff like that. We actually went to Missouri and got a couple hounds one year. Um, that just had some certain pedigree that he was looking for and then kind of brung that in with what we had and started. And we never mainly, and I know some houndsmen probably frown on this, but we never were, uh, we don't trade, we don't raise dogs to sell. We don't raise them for an industry. We raise them to hunt and because we love it. Yeah. A lot of our hounds have pedigrees and paperwork on them. It's just something that for us, we've never really put much value on other than looking for a certain trait mm-hmm. or a certain something. A lot of times we had, certain dogs we were already trying to improve on or a certain line that we had bred from our own hounds. And um, through that, I mean, if you ask me right now to get my paperwork from all of our hounds, I could probably drum up some of it. You know what I mean? But some of it doesn't even have them. And it's just because for what we had growing up, it just wasn't important. We're not worrying about – we field trialed a lot for the fun of just running your dogs and fox hunting and getting into all that. We just – 
we don't we never really got into the competitive side of of it where that was very important it was mm -hmm. more about having the hound that would hunt the way that you wanted to hunt you know um so it's very utilitarian for exactly. what for what your needs were for yep. this specific area and by your hunting experiences and and knowing the country then you knew what you were what you needed what you needed to improve on yep. and and so you just you gathered stock so that you could breed yep. your own style of dog for your own style of hunting that's exactly right and if you found one that they might be dynamite for an hour or two and that swamp's hard on a dog it's just like running in the sand instead of running on a you know the blacktop it's taxing mm -hmm. uh, they're soaking wet they get cold faster it's just it is it is intense work for those hounds compared to being able to run on what we call highland so if you found a dog that that we actually have to trade them out you know we have to you know make a certain hunt and then we're rotating dogs in and out as we're catching them you know so mm -hmm. you, you can't expect too much out of them but at the same time you may not be able to swap those dogs out at this particular time they may be on a deer that's crossed a canal got into a different hunt we're trying to you know it's it never works out perfectly you know that so you have to find a dog that's got enough grit not to quit because i'm telling you i've seen plenty of them you we've run them hard enough and not because we left them out there two or three days we're talking about in a matter of two or three hours that you've ran them hard enough that when they finally got a break or when something finally happened, they're ready to lay up on the first stump or tusk that they can find in the sunshine. Right. You know, and if you don't have a collar for that dog and you're trying to hunt and you're calling him and he's not coming to you, you got a problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're, you're never going to be very successful and cover much ground. So a lot of times we have to go find, literally put our hands on those dogs, get them up, walk them out. Well, you'll learn how to take those and kind of weed those out, you know, maybe so-and-so down the road running Highland. You know, maybe he's not Being running a, a swamp dog. dog. Great dog for him. You know, handles good, and mm -hmm. maybe he can get four or five hours of him out of him, and we could only get one or two, you know. Yeah. And uh, so it's it's it was a very it was a very specific type of dog we were looking for. But uh, walkers in July by far is what we, we always had and still do. Now we actually have a little bit of blackmouth cur mixed into a few <clears> – <throat> excuse me because of some of the highland spots that we hunt now and all but uh but it's still back to all of the hounds that we have and if you go down in the swamp to this day there's still some areas down there that we can still hunt or that some family still hunts down there and that's mm -hmm. what they're running they're running walkers or july right you know every one of them tell us the difference between a swamp and a bayou well the ba a sw swamp and a marsh yeah so the 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 quick answer is the marsh is a grassland mm -hmm. swamp is a flooded timber land to put it bluntly right um the marsh which louisiana has a vast marsh we spend a lot of time in it and i know guys that hunt it uh, we don't particularly hunt the marsh that's a little bit farther south than where we are um but some of that marsh is somewhat quote unquote a natural transition um some of the marsh has been created from it used to be timber back when louisiana was settled or back in the day but it, it had enough of it logged out saltwater intrusion cypress mm -hmm. trees aren't going to regrow it establishes this new growth which is real dynamic i mean you're not going to find an area that has more game period than marshland i mean there is every kind of critter you can imagine if you want to not go hungry and you have to kill something <laughs> with a knife the marsh is the place to be i mean there's critters everywhere and it's amazing how it flourishes for just wildlife everything from birds to alligators newts i mean you just name it fish it's they're everywhere deer yeah not hogs it's 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 a jungle <laughs> i right. mean it really is uh the reason i brought it up is because you know we're we're farther north than that your right. your family right. is hunting the swamps right grew up generations of hunting these swamps yep and the swamp itself is going to be it still has timber for the most part uh, mm -hmm. cypress a lot of tupelo gum 
uh, you get a few oaks and stuff like that scattered through there of a certain type. But uh, it's just a different – in general, you're not going to get the grasses like you do in the marsh. But, um, and in general, in the swamp, you have a few more waterways to travel, natural canals or bayous or pullings, we call them, uh, that you can get around in. Our area, there, there's some pretty vast areas of swamp that you, you know, you've got to pick your way into. But for the most part, there's access to the majority of it through some kind of either natural or man-made waterway or drainage, you know, to get let's, into let, That's a good segue because let's talk about how your family – I want to talk about how your family hunts this, this style, you know, mm-hmm. your transportation, stuff like that, and then talk about how that evolved into the family businesses that you've got going on here with wall-to-wall. Yeah, and I, I kind of touched on it earlier, and, and I, uh, you have to forgive me. I don't have cliff notes. I get a little well, – I ramble quite a bit when I get excited talking about older <laughs> stuff. But, so it may be hard to track me. But in general, the way they started hunting a lot of this swamp originally, and this is kind of back to the story I was telling you earlier with my uh, cousin driving dogs. You know, he had made it out to the boat and was bragging about the fact that he just – you know, he was being a little cocky, you know, and of course he got a wet butt. He got over his boots and Papa was sitting there eating a sandwich. You know, we're met up, got all the dogs on the boat and he finally heard enough. And he said, boy, I've heard about enough out of you. You know, he said, you don't know how easy you have it. You know, he said, we didn't get to ride down here with hip boots and air boats and air conditioned trucks and all the stuff that you got to do. I'm tired of it. And he said, well, well maybe so, but that, that swamp's tough. And he said, well, if you didn't have a boat, how'd you get down here? He thought he had him, you know? Yeah. And he looked right up at him, and he said, we walked, you little beep and beep. (laughs) And he said, well, then how would you get across the canals? He said, we cross-cut them. And they literally would, I mean, they would walk those dogs from high land, lead them in that swamp, cross-cut, you know, they'd have two trees, cross the dead gum canal. They would Mm -hmm. walk the trees across to bring the dogs with them to get into whatever hunt they were wanting to hunt, you know, turn them dogs loose, have a hunt to kill the deer, and then have to pack all that stuff out of there. I can tell you what. Whether you're hungry or not, you got to want it to do it like that. Right. I mean, that is some that, – and that tennis shoes. You know, they would duct tape the bottom of their britches around whatever shoes they hunted out of. Hip boots, I'm not saying somebody didn't have a pair of somewheres at that time. I don't know, but it just wasn't something – it was a hindrance. Right. You know, I mean, this was gritty. I mean, it was gritty, man. And then we got to grow up with that that generation of men in my family I was lucky enough to grow up still hunting with. So that, that meant a lot to me and still does, but – a lot of people, um, you know, hunting, hunting, we've kind of lost some perspective on that. It's, I mean, truthfully, the hunting industry is uh, recreation. Yeah. It's a recreation business. It's a, it's a wildlife management business too. But, but uh, you know, when you look back at the people that were here and everywhere in this area, I mean, they were hunting to survive. Mm-hmm. And when, when, you look at the fact that everything that you do from the time you wake up until you go to sleep at night is for your survival by cross-cutting trees so you can get get back in there, mm-hmm. clearing trails, hunting deer, you know, farm, you know, harvesting alligator eggs, whatever it is, yep. fishing. Yep. It wasn't just it wasn't recreation for them. It was it was how they made a living. Yep. It's no amazing doubt. history. Yep, no doubt. And my my you, you know, we have trapping and hunting f- as far back as you can go in our history. Mm-hmm. Some of the other things, like you mentioned, the alligators, we'll get to that in a minute, but some of that evolved later in that evolution to where, you know, my grandpa started that back in the early 80s. 
So the generation before him was still here to help kind of guide that in, but he was kind of the crank off for that. So that's only three generations worth. Yeah. It's just, just the way that, you know, the industries evolve. But if you, if you back up prior to that, um, this land that we live on here at, at one time, we were the largest strawberry farmer in the, in the state. Uh, we don't do strawberries anymore, mainly because of the alligators, but because the, the, the ground that we're in right as it transitions into the swamp has, it's a sandy bottom. It's just, it had a lot of the right things for strawberries because this area is, is famous for the strawberries. But, mm-hmm. um, and so when we grew up, we were still farming, we trapped, we trapped nutria, coon, beavers, um, otters, we trapped for a living. We shrimped for a living. We crabbed for a living. We uh, farmed for a living. You know, all of those things we did, we farmed strawberries, produce, you know, a lot of different produce, but strawberries were number one. And we would do all of that at the same time. We trapped alligators, did the the whole nine yards, you know. Mm -hmm. So, and hunting was always a part of that. We never did any of that without hunting either being a part of what we were doing naturally. All of it's in the outdoors. All of it's making them, you know, off the land, living off the land. But, um, every bit of that was transitioning to or from hunting, you know, so it was, it was constant. If we were trapping, a lot of times you were trapping the swamp in the wintertime. So you could hunt and trap and do all that kind of at the same mm-hmm. time. If you could get your quota for that day or for that week, then maybe tomorrow all you're doing is hunting. You know, you might just be running dogs and, and scouting and doing something else. But um, some of those industries have dried up over the last few decades, mm-hmm. like the trapping, for example, um, it's pretty famous when it comes to that, that we were making a living off of Nutria. Now they literally have to pay you to kill them. Right. You know what I mean? They're just, there's, there's zero market for the hides whatsoever. So, um, because of that, that natural evolution is what our family had to do as well. You know, so we evolved more into the shrimping or evolved more into the crabbing, you know, and all that, all of the other things are still done in this area. All those that I listed are still done right here. Um, there's still strawberry farmers are still trapping, shrimping, all that's still going on. Um, we just, the alligators started taking over, you know, more and more of what the family were having to put their attention into and taking away from some of the other stuff. And at the same time, some of the other industries were drying up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad sold his last shrimp boat that we, well, I actually had a couple of them that we grew up on, but the last shrimp boat that we grew up in, I was still in high school, and we sold the last shrimp boat and um, and got out of that industry at about the right time. And now they're still shrimpers but you can't make a living doing it anymore you have to do that along yeah. with these other things that yeah, guys things do, you do you know um but because of that um that's literally how a lot of what we do evolved we built our own wingnet frames we built our own boats we built our own airboats we built our own boats to travel back and forth so we, we built our own dog boxes you know and, and just a yeah so out of a necessity type thing you know for your own convenience to to mm-hmm. to do your alleg and we'll talk about the alligator farm here in a few minutes, but uh, all that stuff evolved out of the necessity to make a living mm-hmm. down here. Absolutely. It was for our own needs and right. what we had to have at the time, you know. And th- your dad's company, he's got Gator Tracks boats. Gator Tracks boats. Yes, sir. And yep. they're phenomenal boats. I fell in love with one when I was over here hog hunting this past yeah. winter. Yep. And, uh, and then it's all aluminum construction there, mm-hmm. all welded. And then why did you start making dog boxes? You showed me a picture earlier. And we'll pick up that conversation right after this word from our sponsor. Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting 
from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's Warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab, and it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. This portion of the Houndsman XP podcast is brought to you by Tier 1 Custom Calls. When it's all on the line, make the choice the pros do. Choose Tier 1. Yep. So the, 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 or I guess the origination of the dog box, aluminum dog box for us was the pure fact of because we were still hunting in a swamp, you got to load up in boats and take a 30 minute an hour boat ride to get where we're going. Uh, we had a lot of hounds. You got to bring a day's worth, you know, or more. <laughs> sometimes two or three days yeah. worth. Yeah. And we had a camp down there. We could we could house them and kennel them and do all that at the camp and stay. But, um, you know, you didn't have big powerful boats and all that. You got to, you know, if you're lucky, you got a 50 mercury on the back of a little bateau, and uh, you're trying to put, you know, 15, 20 head of hounds in there. So you're building this giant plywood box that takes four or five of us to load up. Well, as time evolved and we started, you know, building a lot of the boats and doing all that. It just seemed like a no-brainer to, why don't we just build us an aluminum box for this? We can save 300 dead gum pounds. You know yeah. what I mean? It's going to get us there faster. We don't have to keep rebuilding them every two or three years, which in this climate, you have to. I don't care if it's treated or not. You're not going to be in this humidity and this moisture and this, without having to rebuild it. The, the plywood's not going to last. Right. They just don't, you know. Right. So not having time, so that's the, where that started. You know, we built that, and then it worked so good. You know, we're building them for the guys across the river, and we're building them for our buddies, and we're building them for so-and-so. And then, well, you know what? Why don't I put one in my truck? This thing works so great. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of handling that big plywood one, one out of my truck now. Yep. And we did that. And then, you know, five, six, seven years later, next thing you know, you're building uh, more and more of them for extended family and people that hunt in our little area. And hound, hound hunting down here has always been strong. It's still strong today, even though it's in a little different version than what it used to be. We can get to that a little later too, but um, it just it turned into a no-brainer. Well, about, about the same time, we were starting the boat business because of the same exact path. Guy needed a boat. Camp. Nobody built one to do. Nobody what he built to one. Do. Yep. Nobody built one like I want it. Yep. So. That was exactly. And they come to us and really, literally, out of a you know kind of buddy deal. Okay. Well, you know my uncle Chris. And uh, my dad and I was involved in it. You know, we we build this guy the boat that he's looking for. You know, yeah. more, more or less out of a favor, really. You know, um, build them the thing they're looking for. They go out and they call on us, going, "We can't stop at a fuel stop without people mauling us trying to find out where this boat comes from." You know, and it right. turned into same exact thing. You're building more boats for people, and that was twenty something years ago, and still going strong. Well, because of that, it all kind of got cranked off close to the same time. So now all of a sudden, we're we're forced into figure out how to have the facility to do some of this you know so then it, then it became once you had that it became easier to stop and build that boat or build that aluminum dog box when before it's kind of a pain you know what i mean yeah. i mean you've got the stuff to do it don't get me wrong but it's you know it's it's not set up like we are now by no means right so as that evolved farther and farther into that we were doing it all at the same time out of the same shop for a long time and um they just just the natural growing of a business uh, the boat shop has expanded a lot they do i mean man we do everything from a 
bass boat or bay boat that'll do 80 all the way down to a little pier which you can paddle you know we do it all yeah and it's a it's it's funny how similar the box company that i have does the same thing you know we do we do it all so it, it, you make a box that can go on the pier or you can make yep, absolutely or in <laughs> well, a helicopter the, you know what i mean it really go. doesn't matter so and because of that that's how that re- literally got we were building so many boxes for so many people that uh we work six days a week anyway we just don't know anything else to do for not hunting so we were working six days in a week and killing ourselves, and we literally had to branch off, if you will, and start a complete another shop and building and facility just to help. Uh, and this is a while back, but just to be able to focus and concentrate on the boxes because we don't. Our family's always been that way, and it still is. We don't like doing things halfway. And we're not good at that at all. We're right. not. You don't want to bring us to a church picnic and expect us to just hang. We're going to make sure that there's more tables than you need the volleyball goes up you know we're going to yeah. dig a pond if we have to three days before that to have a spot to swim so we're, we're all in when we do stuff mm-hmm. because it's it's mainly just out of a pride we were grown with so when you're spread too thin and some of that it, it starts taking away from being able to focus on that so it really got i remember it got to a point me and dana and my wife was talking about it like look we're fixing out to pull the plug on this old box business or we're fixing to have to expand it. There's no other way to go. And you yeah. can't do it where you're doing it now. We're building a ton of box for people, and we enjoy it. We're doing great. But we just can't have our time split as much as it is. It's, we just, it's not working. And um, through the um, – I, I would like to thank through the good Lord's guidance and uh, some good counsel and family and doing all that, we decided to kind of break that out and um and really never looked back since and 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 what it did luckily what it did it actually allowed us to go back and take two or three more steps on what we can do for you in a box or a trailer you know when we're so busy i can only do you know a through w you know what i mean i can't do a through z we don't have time for z right now you know what i mean yeah and now it allowed us to be able to literally do A through Z and then create a couple more letters at the end that you that never even heard of before. Double A, you know? double B. Double, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, so, and that's, I mean, that's, a, I guess, the long, short version of it. But that's literally how it evolved over 20-something years. And you when know? you talk about making a trailer, I mean, I'm watching, I walk through the shop out there, and you are building the trailer. Right. You know, I did somebody didn't drag a trailer in here and say, Hey, build a box that'll go on that. Right. You're building that thing out of aluminum. It's it's four inch rim you know, heavy wall tube and yep. I mean it's it's a beast and it's it's beautiful. It's gonna be beautiful. Yep. And, yeah, and it's uh it's just there again, just the way that we do things, you know, and mm-hmm. the only way we know how to do them. And you probably could figure out how to reverse engineer it and build it lighter and quicker and do all that. But we're just, it's just not really what we're interested in doing. I, I want to, it may have took you longer than you wanted. It may have, um, uh, I don't know, maybe we weren't located as close to you as you thought we might've been. And Oh, you're talking about for me? No, I'm talking about in general for a customer. Yeah. For me, I'll but, just give you my own experience. You know, I came down, I was down here hog hunting and I always wanted to see an actual old South box. I'd heard about them. And, uh, I got, I started looking and I thought, well, they're just down the road, you know, from where we're hunting. And I was headed through here to go to Texas. And so I swung in, saw what you had going on. And, um, you told me, oh, it'll be six weeks. And that was 10 weeks ago. (laughs) Right. 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 No. So there was some lead time. But when I saw what you were doing and what you were building, Mm -hmm. I've had dog boxes for 38 years and I've had, and I've watched how some of them have disintegrated after I spent a lot of money on that box. Right. And 
so I wanted something that I wasn't going to have to buy again yep. in two or three years. You yep. know, I don't I, – and honestly, the, the pricing on the box that you built for me mm-hmm. for what I got – was a heck of a lot better deal than some of the other boxes that I've seen. Right. That I've watched be destroyed. I mean, yep. there's some there's some big time box builders out there that have gotten to the point where they're cutting corners so bad. I've seen dogs break through the the barring on the the mm-hmm. doors on these things and mm-hmm. stuff. And I wanted something that was secure, something that was well made, and something that was uh, you know uniquely mine in a little ways right. you know certain things i needed and yep. and uh and then as i got to talking to you and dana and and everything and saw how your character and 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 how you guys live your lives with family and different stuff we just kind of scratched the surface on that here when i was before right. when i was here before but i thought this is a company that that i'd like to do if i'm gonna right. spend my money this is where i want to yes, spend sir. it yep and and to that point, I mean, your experience with us, no matter who it may be from wherever you are, uh, we try to treat the same. And, there, look, we're not perfect. I mean, there's things that we missed a call on or forgot to make a call back once with a guy. or so. I mean, things happen in business, man, and we do so much custom stuff. Every now and then we've got to back up and say, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. You know, here's the, mm-hmm. here's the deal. But when it's all said and done – Hopefully it goes flawless for you. You know, we have a lot to do. But when it's all said and done, even if there was something there that maybe didn't go quite the way you wanted, when you have your hands on that box, I want you to realize that you've got something you can pass down to your kids and their kids and that you literally have a legacy on your hands if you choose to do that with it. Yeah. You have something that if you choose to resell it in eight years, you're going to get top dollar for it. Mm -hmm. The resale value is going to be high. It's going to be held up. Um, and not only that, the, the boat industry has a lot of mirrors as the dog box industry. I want to talk about that because you, you, you do the powder coating, but you also do a situation where you run your boxes through the same process that your boats go through. So this mm-hmm. in the, I got one that was black The mm-hmm. What do you call that? Blacked out. Yes. Blacked sir. out. Mm-hmm. It's all blacked out. And, and it went through the same process that a boat does. So you didn't, it's not just spray painted right out there in the shop. I mean, yep. this is the real deal. Yeah. And when it comes to aluminum period, you really have to know what you're doing. And a lot of people do, but aluminum is by far a commodity that if you don't know about it, and I don't mean just how to weld it, you have to know tensile strengths. You have to mm-hmm. know where the mill, where it comes from, what it's made for, what can bend, what can't, what piece goes where. I mean, we, you, you'd be shocked if you saw our layout on what we have to pull for these two pieces, them 10 pieces, those 20 pieces yeah. to put together in a box. Well, it's not the customer's problem to know that. All they need to know is that it lasts. You know, there's a lot of science that goes behind that. So painting aluminum is no different. You know what I mean? You really have to know what you're doing. It takes a lot of high-tech process yeah. to get that to go through. And at the end of the day, it is like a pickup truck or a boat. You know, if you, I don't know, smack the light pole, well, you're probably going to, you know, ding the paint on it, but it's not going to just flake off and destroy. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, it's just like a truck or a boat would be. But what the funny part, what kind of mirrors the boat industry is, there's a lot of boats out there that are made to look great, mm-hmm. look pretty. Uh, they got a nice motor on the back of them, got a decent price. And you can take your youngins out a few times a year with it. But they're, they literally designed that boat to be a weekend boat. Everything from the tires on the trailer up through the gauges on the console, they're betting and hoping that you're only going to use it a few times a year. 
you know, and it's the same way in the dog box industry. There's a lot of that out there as well. Well, no matter how you choose to use your unit, we're going to build it that you're hunting every day. We're going to build it. We build for these trainers and for these outfitters and for these guides and all the work. You need to be able to beat the crap out of the thing every day of the week, yeah. 365 days a year. You know what I mean? And that's that's one of the biggest differences. And in the boat company, that Daddy's Boat Company is the same way. Mm-hmm. They build that boat to literally be able to guide and beat the crap out of it all day long and not right. be just a recreational boat. And if that's what you do with that boat, if you are that recreational guy with that boat or box, that's you'll, you'll be okay. You know what I mean? You'll be fine. Just don't expect to go take it and put it through the grueling test that we do down here with our equipment and expect it to last for mm-hmm. you. You know, that's, that's the biggest difference. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a, and that's, that's one of the things that, that, uh, I look for in a box is because, uh, some of these recreational boxes, as you want to call them, uh, right. They want to charge the same amount of money. Right. (laughs) For a much lesser product. Right. So. Yeah. And even that, I mean, just to touch on it, we, we literally do not get involved with what our competition does, doesn't do what they charge, what they build, what they offer. It's that's completely up to them. It really doesn't bother us one way or another. We have what you do. We do what we do. We charge what we have to charge to build what we do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we've had plenty of guys that's come to us and after they've signed a contract or after they've left with a trailer or a topper or some big unit. And, uh, sometimes they've dropped some prices that they shopped around on or whatever. And it's like, that's, that's fine. You know, that they, they were shocked what they got, you know, cheaper for more. And it's like, that's okay. You know, we uh, that that doesn't concern me because we affordable. Yeah, we you know? we we price this yeah. to do what we have to do for it, yeah. no more, no less, and and go with it. You know, and that's that's you know, I run construction stuff, and um, I want to, I'm going to charge what I want to charge. I don't care if somebody else can charge you more, or they make more money, right? Or somebody wants to charge you less. Right. You know, I'm going to give you the best job I can, and it's a price that you and I have agreed agreed upon. You're yep. happy with it. I'm happy with it. Yep. And boom. Well, that's that's what keeps people happy. And it's just like a house. You can walk up to two houses built side by side in the naked eye and never see the difference and not right. know that the way those houses were built, that one's got $40,000 more worth of material and is built better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to withstand the hurricane that's, <laughs> that's fixing yeah. to come through. Yeah. And the other one looks as pretty, but it's just not built the same way. Right. So you see a lot of that. It's in every industry. It really is. Um, we just choose to be on the, on the, uh, heavier side of it, if, if yeah. you will, you know, let's, uh, let's kind of sh- shift gears here a little bit. And you want to talk about, like I said, you're no stranger to stranger to being interviewed and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and why is that? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Wall hanger TV. You guys, you guys spend, not only do you have yeah. hounds and. I mean, like I've said before, there's several layers to this onion. Right. And uh, But you guys produce a TV show called Wallhanger TV. We do. Yep. Been doing it for, I don't know, it's sad when you get to a point what you do, you don't remember how many years, but um, <clears throat> probably getting close to 15 to 15 to ish, somewhere in there that we've been doing that. Um, we do have a hunting show, outdoor hunting show. It's mainly whitetail related. That's mainly what we do. Uh, chase whitetails in a lot of places like you live. You know, and we yeah. do it some down here too, but, um, we travel around quite a bit in hunting season, but not as much as we used to. We, we literally do, people don't see it when they watch the show, but we literally will do a lot of work into Friday morning, jumping in a truck, 
in November flying 12 hours that night in a pickup truck, you know, to get where we're going, hunt two, three days, run back home. You know what I mean? And we've yeah. got to build and get, you know, customers. So that, it's a it's a rodeo in the fall. It really is. It's like is, producing but. a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, but no, man, we've been doing that for a long time. Uh, it airs on the Pursuit Channel. It's on right now. The new season's already started for 2021. Um, and it's just a family oriented show. Our motto in our show is uh, is God, family, and hunting in that order, and that's what we portray. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been blessed to do it. Work with a lot of great companies. We've been doing it a long time. The there's a funny quick backstory to it, but the gist of it is um, a lot of people in that industry or some people in the industry got into it for one reason and then tried to figure out how to hunt and produce a show. You mm-hmm. know, we're the exact opposite. We are, you ought to see me behind the keyboard. It's brutal, right? So we're not high tech. It's hard to get a text message out it, of you. Exactly. You know, so <laughs> we're not these high tech computer producing TV gurus. We have to have guys that do that. You know, we've got some guys that are good friends of ours and some that work for us that produce the shows for us. But we want to hunt. That's what we want to do. We want to hunt and we want to enjoy the outdoors and we want to hammer down on that side of things. We're great at that. The rest of it, it's a struggle for us to produce. When I mean produce, like, the you know, the, the nuts and bolts of that side of right, it. Right, right. Um, but we've learned a long time ago we're genuine people. And when it comes to we work with a lot of sponsors and stuff and we just – simply do what we say and it's amazing how well that works uh, especially in that, that business. Wouldn't that be great if everybody did that? <laughs> yeah and it's uh it's it's just filled with a lot of saying one thing and doing another and a lot of sour this and sour that but we got into that industry before the boom really happened to where everybody has some sort of uh video of hunting somewhere whether it's YouTube or yeah downloading it or doing whatever uh, we got in prior to that. When we got in, there wasn't a lot of networks that were airing TV shows. You literally had to have the airtime. You had to anchor it down. The the, the process was completely different. Mm-hmm. We actually, to to put it bluntly, when I finally got out of high school, we worked from the time we were youngins. We didn't do anything different. When you got out of high school, now all of a sudden you're not playing football. You're not going to school. All you're doing is working, trapping, doing. That's great. But how the heck am I going to afford to be able to hunt? It's like I want to hunt because I right. want to hunt. I want to hunt a lot. And it doesn't take long to figure out, like, man, the older you get and the more you start traveling around and doing it, it costs money, real money, yeah. you know, that you don't yeah. have. So we literally, the the evolution of Wallhanger TV was born out of that in itself, the pure love and desire to figure out how to be able to hunt. So we the boat company was already started by then. We had got with Daddy. He's got two partners, Kent and David, and got with them and actually bought a camera, went in halves with them, and we got this camera so we could film some boats and stuff like that. And then we were going out self-filming a lot of hunts. We pro-staffed for some other shows for two or three years, uh, then had a local guy here that was working for a show out of Texas that we were going to try to pro-staff for. He saw back then you made a DVD, you know right. what I mean, and handed it to him with a yeah. media kit, you know. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, he, he had saw it and actually come to us a long time ago and said, man, have you ever thought about doing y'all's own show? And we're like, well, yeah, that's the goal, but we don't have the money, you know. And he's like, well, you don't need it if we can get it paid for. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know how to do that either. And he's like, well, I do. I know that side of this business. I want to mm-hmm. come in with y'all. Let's get through this first year and see what happens. So we did it. We pulled the trigger on it. We literally went and borrowed $1,500 or something from my grandmother <laughs> to buy plane tickets to fly to Las Vegas, which this country boy had obviously never been to Las Vegas, right. to fly to Las Vegas to go to the SHOT Show, you know, the biggest outdoor yep. show in the world, yep. and literally hit the ground walking around, shaking hands and, you know, kicking tires and just showing people who we were and what we did. And through that, 
we actually made a few contacts. That's kind of the old school way, but we made a few contacts, some of which are still with us today, sponsor-wise, company-wise. And um, through that, it just it's a slow grind. Everything we do, man, is a slow grind. Nothing we do is fly by night. I mean, it took years and years and years of going through that um, and just getting, you know, keeping the lights on, if you will, you know, and moving on to the next year and mm-hmm. gridding it out. And uh, we enjoy it, man. We really do. Uh, that industry's evolved a lot, but we've managed to be able to find a nice mix of evolving with it, but yet at the same time, just being who we are and staying true to what our value is and what we can do for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a real value in that. And we've, you know, we've had times where we've been the number one rated show on the networks, and we've we've worked with some of the biggest companies out there, you know, yeah, um, and still do with some of them, but. Um, but yeah, it's it's a very unique industry to itself for mm-hmm. sure, and it, I mean that's a whole nother line of things. But yeah, we we spend a lot of time and money and uh, effort and work with family and traveling and doing that. So it's a uh, it's another, I guess, page to the little daily yearly story to what we have going on. <laughs> right, right. What kind of uh, the uh, the star of the show isn't here? Right. Dana's not here. Mm-hmm. And I'll yeah. just tell you right now that, that Dana's a better hunter than you are, isn't she? Yeah, I give up on that years ago. <laughs> so, and a funny story with that, and everybody knows it. If they watch the show, they know it. I don't have to tell them. Uh, Dana grew up hunting. She grew up dog hunting with her family in the Homochitta Forest, just north of here in Mississippi. And they, they were a hunting family. But they never really – a lot of what we do when we travel in the Midwest, they don't even have hound hunting in a lot of those places. No. You know, and, it's a lot of bow hunting. It's a lot, and we rifle hunting stuff too. But it's a lot of chasing the rut style right. hunting that we do yep. on the show. And uh, she'd never done that, and never had the opportunity to do it when we started dating, and later got married, whatever. When started this whole deal, but anyway, she hadn't really bow hunted and done that. So yeah. I was able to take kind of a blank canvas, and I only knew one way to train people, and that was the way I was trained, which is pretty hardcore, you know. <laughs> and she. Uh, to be bluntly, uh, we created a monster. I mean, we she took everything that I told her, extremely literal, and put it to practice and yeah. learned how to do it. And now she is the one that's getting on to me about being quiet or we don't need to walk in this way or just don't go drive in there. We're, we're going to hunt that tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and she's a, she's a straight-up killer, man. She uh, If you were in our house right now and if you look behind me, I'll show you later, but all of the big deer are hers except one. Right. Uh, she's just got a knack for it. I don't know how to. We we shot some tournament archery for a while. I'm really, you know, I'm pretty good at that. And uh, she's not. She's not a tournament archer. She's Isn't that not, something? Uh, she, but when it comes to go time to kill that animal, she's going to get it done. Yeah. And she's just proved it time after time. You know. So and she loves it. But uh, but no, no doubt the star of the show. Uh, I'm on my own today. She had a doctor's appointment this morning. She may yeah. get back in in time here in a little bit. Yeah. But, so uh, many people I know. Uh, through my hunting experience, Chad, I mean, they, they're proficient at target shooting and things right. like that. But uh, when it's time, it's like they they understand yep. how animals, animals move. Yep. You know, they've got this sixth sense about mm-hmm. them that understands that. Yep. And it's not something that you can really train. Right. Uh, I think some of it you can pick up through experience, but same way with being a houndsman. You know, yep. some people just connect better. And when you start driving, 
dri- trying to drive square pegs through round holes, sometimes right. it doesn't always work out. But yep. When you see it all come together, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and it's so funny that she actually, it's it's come full circle, and she teaches me a lot that she doesn't know, uh, and I'll never admit to her. I hope she don't hear this, but, you she, know. I'm going to make sure. Through, yeah, so through <laughs> through the way that she hunts and some of the things and ways she goes, I've, I've been filming her before and she fooled around and killed this deer we've been after. And I've literally had to go back and go, okay, now how did we, how did we do that? How did she get this done? You know, and I'll go back and find two days ago when I thought we needed to do this, she decided we were going to do that because it was her hunt. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately led to killing this deer, you know and I mean? It, this is, this is legitimate. So I'm going back and I'm going, okay, well, how do I do that next time? You know, and there's no any hunting with any animal. There's no blueprint for being successful, right? There's a lot of things that work. And there's a lot of things that don't, but you're dealing with wild, fair chase animals. So there's no, well, I'll tell you what, man, all you got to do is these three things and you're going to kill the biggest deer on your farm. It doesn't work like that. Right. You'll do those three things and have the highest possibility of killing that animal. But right. there's still a lot that goes on in between the hedges, <laughs> if you will. And she just has this weird, and I think as men, and I know as myself, I tend to try to outwork or overwork or overthink something sometimes, especially in the deer woods. Um, I'm going to make sure I get that deer then, you know, here's Mm -hmm. the weather and here's, and I'm doing all these things. And she walks out, sniffs the air, throws some dirt up and goes, well, let's hunt over here. And I'm, I'm thinking, do you think, don't go over there. Do you think it's, uh, (laughs) let me ask you this question. So say you're on one of your hunts and she's been, is she, how does she feel if she's not successful? Well, if she does if she didn't put a put a buck on the ground, how does she, what's I, her reaction? Well, I don't know. I've never seen that happen before. <laughs> no, 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 but to be to be honest, she she handles it different too. You know, like if if I'm if I plotted a vacation and I say vacation lightly, but if I plotted my time off of the shop to go at a certain time of year with a certain weather to kill a certain animal or just any mature buck in a certain spot and I devote I'm out. I'm done. I'm I'm going I'm not coming back till I get him. Mm-hmm. And five, six days later, I'm coming home empty-handed. I am not very pleasant to be around. Right now, look, I love all the things about outdoors. I'm not. Don't, I don't want to get emails about what well, it's not about the kill. It's about look. I right. know more than anything. Outdoors, we live it twelve months of the year when you can't fire a shot at all. So I get all of that. Right. But there's something about that kill, that justification of what you're doing and getting that fit. It's no different than the pride in the hard day's work, right? You can't accomplish that pride without completing that hard day's work, Mm -hmm. right? It's the same way with harvesting an animal. It's just something about it when you finally get that animal down. There's just things that you get from that that you can't if you don't kill him, right? There's a lot of things you can get from a hunt, whether you saw anything or not, that are very valuable. We place a lot of pride in that, but... I'm I'm not pleasant to be around. It right. takes me a few days. You know what I mean? When we were, she's not quite like that. Now, granted, if we let an opportunity get away from us, it'll rattle her to an extent. She gets mad. Like, I don't mean like, well, we hunted five days and didn't get it done. Well, she's okay with that because mm-hmm. she knows we did everything we could possibly do and it didn't work out. Right. But if we had an opportunity and that deer got there and something happened or it didn't, like we should have killed him and it didn't work, that that'll get both of us, but right. that'll frustrate her. You know, the, the, the reason I was asking, I think, is men and we we're looking at it like I've taken vacation, I've done all the planning, I should be successful, and you know this is the way it is with me and my wife. And I see what's going on around here for you guys. For you know here right. is there's a lot going on here for you to plan that time. You want to maximize that time. And as men, I think we think about, we put that as part of our success gauge. Yep. You know, and my wife is more like, 
Well, we didn't kill a deer, but that's pretty fun. I had a good time. Yep. I'm like, what are you talking about? The weather was yep. terrible. You know, the wind was, didn't – oh, it was good to get away. Yep. You know, and I'm no, just like – Yeah, they they have a way of focusing more on the little things and not letting quite as much of that get get to them, you know. But, um, but like I said, when it comes down to go time, if it doesn't happen – you'll see her you'll see her get rattled you know what i mean i've noticed that with working with uh lauren Verani, one of our co-hosts on the show you know mm-hmm. she's just got a different energy that she brings to it the way she interacts with the hounds the way she right but when it's time to hunt right she's on it you yep. know yep she's hardcore and dude we, we've got our little girl she's seven now and she's been killing critters for three years now or four and um I'm raising her the same way I was raised. It's just, it's just part of what we do. We hunt, you know, that's what we do. So that's what she does, you know, and she gets to a point in her life. She can make her own decision and that's great. But for now you're part of this family and this is what we do. And she loves it. Well, the reason I'm saying that last year, youth season, we were on a rifle hunt, uh, I think in Kentucky and, uh, dude, it was like the, the clouds lifted and we were on this set up a ground blind just for this hunt. This buck comes out and I say eight point turn and turn and turn. And it was our first, year to actually shoot a rifle right and um she wound up not getting a shot on this deer even though she knew and i knew there was two opportunities that that deer turned and paused long enough for her to make it happen but as a six-year-old letting a few things get it it didn't happen well when that deer walked off you know i was very uh intrigued by how her reaction was going to be right Mm -hmm. i felt like what i'm fixing to see is fixing to set the tone for the next 10 years of her hunting career right is she gonna laugh and want a snack is she gonna say i'm ready to go home or what's she gonna do mm-hmm. and she got upset and got quiet and tears were rolling out of her eyes and she was mad at the doe that scared the buck and like and she got she's not bawling in the blind but she's upset man and, yeah. and i'm looking at that and of course dana's in the blind with us and it's breaking her heart she's wanting to just go oh baby it's okay you know and i'm like just leave her be just leave her be. And later on that night, I told her, I said, babe, if, if that opportunity would have got away from her that she knew she had been working for all summer, there's no secret to this. This wasn't a, hey, you want to go hunting? And we ran out in the woods. This is something that's, a, like I said, 12 months out of the year. We've been working. She's planted a food plot. She's worked and she's done it all with us. Clear yeah. the trails, all that. Put the ground, the whole deal. And when it got away from her, it, it, it aggravated her, right? It got <laughs> to her. So I'm telling Dana later that night, I was like, babe, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That means it meant something to her, you know, that you can't fake that. Man, you, can't, we could, you can't tell them that, you know. We could make a whole podcast about uh, catering to success in these youth hunters, you know, right. killing ourselves. But I think it's good that we hunt. If we're going to bring kids into it, then they've got to know that not every hunt is easy. Not every hunt is successful yep. and you've got to deal with, you got to put the work in, but, yep. uh, before we be, I know your time's valuable, Chad, and, uh, I appreciate it, but we've alluded to it. We got to hear about the alligator farming. That's, that's a cool yep. story. So yeah, I'll, I'll kind of wrap the entire <clears throat> industry up. There really wasn't an industry prior to the seventies, eighties, something like that. I'm, I'm, I'd have to look at my stuff to give exact dates, but uh, the, the American alligator obviously is not located in 50 states of the U.S., right? <laughs> so it's only in the south and in the southeast more specifically. And um, that was something that uh, through some intuition from my grandpa who since passed on in the early 80s, I think 82, uh, he established Wall's Alligator Farm. Uh, and when he did that, it was uh, for the 
hopefully what was going at the time his daddy my great-grandpa had a association of, uh, where they shipped hides and bought hides out of Springfield uh, which was just right down the road and we were big time into the trapping industry so what he was trying to do was look forward into the future of the value of a hide of an alligator and why can't we farm this alligator just mm-hmm. like we farm anything else you know and the state at the same time was evolving into trying to figure the same exact thing out. So they started opening these programs and ideas for let's see if we can make this thing work. Cause it's, it's an asset to the state of Louisiana. The American alligator is absolutely a big business for Louisiana. Right. And the state recognized that and started trying to manage it for one, you know, as far as later they were going to be opening a season to be able to harvest alligators and trying to manage it as far as the alligator farmers, how they, how they took gators, how they put gators back, that whole deal. So he got in it early, really early, before it was really an industry. And um, it grew and evolved a lot over the years, like everything else does. And uh, up to the point where now, uh, even though he's passed on, he had five kids, four sons. Two of them is still in the, like, running alligator farm business. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them's down the road with his own farm, and the other one's here. And uh, it's still going strong. It's still, I don't even know, man. It's, we help them and do things quite a bit throughout the year, but there's probably, I don't know, 50, 60 people working back there. They've got thousands of thousands of thousands of alligators. And the process there is scientific, but yet the concept is simple. We go down into a lot of the marshes that we alluded to earlier. Uh, we'll, we'll sign contracts with the landowners or the land companies and we get the rights to go in to actually harvest the alligator eggs from the nest. So mm-hmm. we fly over them with a helicopter. We spot them on a GPS. We go back out with a boat, go to each individual nest by hand and pick the eggs up, put them in a barrel, and bring them home. The state regulates all of that. Everything when an alligator, the state regulates, period, you sure. know, from one end to the other. And it works It works great. They've 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 developed a system that allows us to be able to work and be efficient and not be hindered by it but at the same time there's an absolute process so they tell you how many eggs you can pick up off that property no matter how many is there they say you're allotted let's just use a thousand all right you're Mm -hmm. allotted a thousand eggs for that property so you go out and you get your thousand eggs i gotta ask you a question about this so what's what's the what's the common practices of a an alligator nest is it a guarded nest is it is it yeah so alligators are just like any other animal and just like people their personalities are different you know, mm-hmm. so we're we're gonna go. If me and Dana worked a boat together for years, but if if we pull up to a nest, there's more than likely a mama alligator there. Now, right. whether she's in the edge of the grass, under the water, in a hole, you may not see her. Uh, if we're gonna go to a hundred and twenty, hundred and thirty nests a day, ten percent of those you're gonna have to fight for the eggs. You know, you're literally gonna have to fight her back to keep her at bay to get the eggs out. Which I don't blame her. It's mama, right? Right. Um, and we've got a whole, we've got hours of stories over things that happened in that process, but, mm-hmm. but uh, it, and it can be dangerous, no doubt. I mean, I, I got bit a couple of years ago, um, pretty severely had to have emergency surgery and, uh, they pieced me back together and I'm good to go now other than a big, really cool scar on my calf. But, <laughs> um, but we got bit by just about an eight footer a couple of years ago, you know, so it mm-hmm. does happen. It's, it's pretty dangerous to be out there, but. But this um, is all regulated by the state, so it's not like, correct. you know, it's not 
walls are going out and raiding the American alligator nests and the the yep. the natural population is threatened it's all permitted it's all regulating it's all backed by scientific management type absolutely stuff. the biologists tell us what we can and can't do essentially and then right. they, and then and it's evolved enough now they have panels full of alligator farmers that they'll mm-hmm. meet with every year and they'll give their feedback or their suggestions or what trends they're seeing and they might tweak percentages or numbers or there's a lot man that's a science it really is yeah but the gist of it is we're told how many we can go get we go get those eggs, we bring them back, we incubate them, we raise them, we hatch them out by hand. And then out of those alligators, usually around a year later, roughly, we actually have to turn back a certain percentage back to that property. That's so, what I was getting to ask, too. Right. So when we turn them back, they're four foot long, roughly. These are all rough numbers, but they're four foot long and can fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. When they're born, a baby alligator is a little lizard. They're ate by everything. They are at the bottom of the food chain. Right. Fish, chicken hawks, owls, other gators. I mean, literally everything out there eats them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why one sow gator has 30-something eggs on average because they know they're not all going to make it. The wild, and it's debated here lately what the actual number is, but the the word out is the actual wild survival rate is in the low single digits mm. that will actually turn out to be a mature alligator. We're talking yeah. like 3%. So when we have to turn back, and it varies every year, but there for a long time, it'd be 14%. So we have to take whatever we took, we're turning back 14% on that property by hand, literally driving out there and putting them back, physically putting them back at four foot long. I would think, I'd think that it'd be a fairly good transition because I don't think you could uh, habituate an alligator. You know, you take that alligator four footer out of the, out of your farm and you put him back in the water it's not like you've got to train them to go do what alligators do. Yep. No, it's not, and it's amazing to watch that process. They absolutely are not domesticated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they <Yeah>. are. Yeah. <laughs> and and they, they stay in pens that are very, uh, I wouldn't say they're not, they don't look like the swamp, but they're, they're in the water. They're in a dark environment. Unless we're literally going in there to grade them or to process them, um, they're pretty much living their same life. You know, they, yeah. they, we're not hand bottle feeding them. There's feed in there that they have to go get. You're not but, letting um, them nurse from the mother alligator. No, not exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's an amazing process, man. And that, that, um, the gist of it is after they get to a certain point, the market kind of tells us when that gator is ready to harvest. Sometimes it's bigger. Sometimes it's smaller. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's uh, what we call a horn back, which is the very back of the gator. Sometimes it's the belly, which naturally is the bottom side. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market kind of depicts where that value is at. But then we uh, we let them get to that point. We process them in-house. You know, So uh, we, we take them and skin them out, process them, salt them down, cure them. And then we're basically shipping directly to the tanneries. Mm-hmm. So you'll have a four by four box crated up, leaving out of there. That's got, you know, a whole wad of wild alligator, you know, hides in it. That's yeah. going to go to a tannery somewhere that cool. ultimately will be when you, you know, boots or a belt strap or a watch band or, or anything else. And, right. but every, every piece of that alligator is used literally every piece of it from the carcass to the, I mean, the meat is sold, the feet are sold, the head is used. Mm-hmm. Um, even the, even the, uh, even what we call the guts, but even the guts in them are processed. They're either reused or that's just, man, there's just a, um, it's an industry that uh, has done a really good job on the management. So, so much so that they even started dropping some of the return rates here recently because the environments were, they were starting to overperform. Yeah. And now there's more gators, not necessarily than you need because they come in and tell right behind us, they tell the alligator hunters, this is how many you need to kill off of this piece of property. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so then they come in and actually harvest the mature gators out as well. But, um, but yeah, it's a process, man. There again, it's all about just living off the land and being outdoors and outdoor related. And, um, it's a unique industry, but you know, it's, fun. <laughs> it's funny born and raised here. And we we were very sheltered. We didn't know that until we got old enough to get out in the world, but we were sheltered. And what I mean by that is we were so busy and so consumed with what we did here day to day to work that you kind of didn't realize that they were guys in Indiana that didn't know what an alligator was. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, or did, right. You just you just don't really think about it because you don't see it. Yeah. Well, we all thought what we do every day for a living was normal, you know, mm -hmm. and then you start traveling a little bit and you start going to these different camps and do, and you realize that what we do for in a lot of ways is, is far from normal. You know, not many people would do that. And, and through that, we've actually been able to bring some friends and stuff down from different states and let them experience some of this from time to time. And it's, it's a hoot, man. It's, mm -hmm. it's fun. We try to bring a lot of kids down and let them get to go out and experience it sure. and, and then teach them the conservation side of it too, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it and the ultimate, you know, result from it, you know. Normal is relative. You know, it's, yeah, it's there's a, a lot of relative that goes into that because some things that are normal for us aren't normal for you. And, and uh, right. Chad, like I said, man, a lot of layers to the onion. Yeah. And uh, I, I've, the culture, the coolest thing about producing the podcast is being able to tap into resources and hear stories right. from your family history. Yep. You know, I've got uh, my kids or daughters of the American Revolution. I'm sons of the American Revolution uh, from Virginia, and you came right. from Carolina. So uh, I love hearing that kind of history. And then yep. to hear that how your family saw a resource, had the vision and and made a living here and it's been sustainable for your family as long yep. as it's been is an amazing story and and then you start talking about you know high quality dog boxes because you needed dog boxes and boats and you know yep. wall hanger tv yep. you guys got it going on i appreciate <laughs> your time i don't know about going it's going on it's going one way or another <laughs> yeah uh, constantly but it's a uh, and it look, man, we're we're super blessed. But you touched on it, and I I just sometimes maybe what I'm saying doesn't come across the way I think it does. But I will absolutely say that, you know, we're we're blessed. Uh, we're blessed to just live in this country. Period. Uh, sometimes we don't stop long enough each day to to literally take you know account of what we have and what we do, um, because every day is full. Of, if you don't have hard work and a hard head, you're not going to survive down here. You know, right. I mean, you're not going to be part of what we do. You just can't. Mm -hmm. You have to have a thick skin, a hard head, and not be scared to work hard. It's just the way that we are. And out of that literally has been born a lot of the things that we have. But it, as much as we've done and accomplished in our short life, uh, none of that would be either existing or as easy if it wasn't for the generations that came before us mm -hmm. that paved that way, that did things when it was a lot harder than it is nowadays. You know, And, and we take appreciation for that. And there's no doubt about it. Uh, we traveled a lot, but my home is Lizard Creek, Louisiana, you know, and, and we've got a lot of us in the dirt here. I plan on being here too one day, you yeah. know, and it's just, uh, Lord's blessed us, man. Uh, we, we try to raise our kid with the same hard work ethics, but yet at the same time, learn to appreciate what you have. And it's, it's, even though you sometimes every now and then you get tired, you know, from work or whatever, but, uh, man, it's a luxury to be able to do what we yeah. do. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it really is, you know. Right. Um, and having the freedom to do so. You know? I agree. I agree. Well, thanks for sharing it with us. Before we go, I'm sure this isn't going to be the last time we're going to talk, yeah. Chad. Like we just, we just maybe got two a couple layers off this onion. Absolutely. So we're going to keep working on it. But uh, tell people 
if they're interested in a box, the easiest way to get get into contact with you? Yeah, it's really simple. The fastest, easiest way is just jump online or your phone, OldSouthDogBoxes.com. You can you can search it on Facebook as well. We do a lot of stuff on Facebook. We we update it with there's thousands of pictures on there. If you're just curious and wanting to go fumble through and see what we do, uh, Facebook's probably the first place to go. Uh, don't message us on Facebook. Don't do that. We have way too many. We try to get to all of them, mm-hmm. um, but it's hard for us to keep up with that. Uh, call us directly. Call us at the shop. Uh, that information's online. I'll send us an email. Usually within the day, we're on the phone with you. You're on the email. You right. Know? Well, sometimes the social media stuff gets kind of lost in the fray. But uh, but no, we'd be glad. Anybody out there, I mean, we, we feel like uh, naturally our products sell themselves. We'd be glad to help anybody out there that's looking for something to – you know, last and for their particular needs is kind of what we do, you know? Yeah. Tell, tell everybody where they can find wall hanger TV. It's on the same thing. You can check it out on the website there. You can stream it and do all that, even though that's foreign to me, it's we're on all kind of streaming devices, Roku's and all this stuff, but, uh, pursuit up. Yep. Where it's anchored at is pursuit channel. Uh, we air on Thursday nights, nine o'clock central. We air on Saturdays at 12 o'clock noon central. Uh, and a few other times during the day. Nowadays, you can go, you know, record it, TiVo it on Pursuit Channel, uh, or you can watch it on Pursuit Up. And then, like I said, there's a lot of places. If you have a smart TV, you're probably going to be able to find it. I'm, right. I'm too dumb to know exactly where they're I all at. I don't know how but... to use a smart TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I'm told you can find it there, too. <laughs> well, Chad, uh, I appreciate your time. And, man, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm sure it's not going to be the last time we talk to you. I hope not. And uh, maybe next time we can. Yes, sir. We can uh, talk to Dana as well and get some of her stories. But till yep. next time, Chad, you follow your hounds, I'll follow mine.